We have a pretty funny story to talk about today with Ohio's new license plate. You don't get to see those kinds of errors very often on the big stage. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Lisa Garvin, Layla Atassi, Laura Johnston, all excited because we're heading into the weekend, even if it's rainy and gloomy. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> rainy and gloomy, woohoo! Yeah. Hey, heading into the weekend was the woohoo part. <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. It's been a long week. All right, let's get going. How did Ohio Congressman Anthony Gonzalez once again show his independence and character in a vote Thursday involving the January 6th insurrection sparked by then-President Donald Trump? Lord Johnston, we are going to miss him when he goes because he does stand for something. He does vote his conscience, and it's kind of cost him his job. Yeah, absolutely. So Gonzalez joined nine other Republicans and all the Democrats in voting to hold former Trump White House aide Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress for defying the subpoena that was to testify before the committee that's probing this January 6th Capitol riot. And they voted to refer Bannon's case to the Justice Department for prosecution. If he's found guilty, he could face up to a year in prison and $100,000 in fines. So obviously, we know Gonzalez voted to impeach Trump. He got so much blowback for it that he's not running for re-election. So, I mean, he doesn't have anything to lose here. He's voting his conscience. And he did not put out a statement about this. He just he just did it. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I was glad to see he did it. I mean, Steve Bannon is defying Congress. You're not allowed to do that. It is a crime. And, and all of Congress, all of Congress, every Republican should have voted to enforce the congressional will to not hold him in. He defied the subpoena. It's right. not whether or not you agree with the subpoena. He defied the subpoena. And yet a bunch of Republicans are saying that that's not contempt of Congress. Well, and so. then you've got Jim Jordan, our good friend, Republican Jim Jordan, who argued against this contempt finding. Of course, he claimed the investigation was part of a Democratic vendetta against Trump because of his success in the White House. Like, you wonder how you can say these things with a straight face. But the committee wanted to talk to Bannon because he believes he has information about the probe. And he was active in Trump's effort to stop Congress from counting those electoral college ballots. And so he has information. Obviously, he doesn't want to answer to the committee. But you're right. This is a subpoena. And and Merrick Garland, the U.S. attorney general, said he's going to apply the facts and make a decision consistent with principles of prosecution. And you could go to prison for a year on this. I mean, this is not Good. some minor crime and there's no one in office that would pardon him now. So he he's playing with fire by not showing up and, and talking to them. I'm kind of surprised he didn't go just to have the stage. I mean, he loves to get attention. It'd be interesting to see how much of a clash this is. By going after him, it also sends a message to anybody else who might think to defy the Congress because they clearly have the votes to charge you with a crime. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's more interesting, the new Ohio license plate unveiled Thursday by Ohio Governor Mike DeWine or the fact that several hours later, the state had to correct a glaring error on it. Lisa Garvin, I'm half thinking they made this mistake on purpose because it's what we were talking about rather than whether the plate was ugly. (laughs) 
Well, yes, it is. It's, it is quite a colorful plate, but yeah, they, uh, there's a, there's a Wright brothers style airplane flying across the top with a banner and somebody on social media quickly pointed out, well, the plane's backwards. So, you know, they, they had, they had to go back and fix it. They already had printed, printed about 35,000 of these plates. I honestly, and they're going to recycle them. Honestly, they should have let them out into the world because, you know, license plate collectors went, oh yeah, mistake plate. They probably got excited and now they're just going to be recycled back into the, you know, back into the whatever. But it reminds me of that inverted Jenny. I'm sure most of you know about the inverted Jenny stamp that got out. A hundred of them got out. The plane was upside down and they're still trying to find all a hundred of them. But anyway, yeah, the plate, it, it's, 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 go ahead, go ahead. And, and the reason it the, the, the backwards forwards thing was important is it was a towing a banner. Right. And it basically had the banner on the front of the plane. On the, right. So it was flying into the banner instead of towing the banner, you know, and it was a banner, you know, crowing about we're first in flight. But uh, but it was I mean, they did this big presentation of the plate. It was all the pomp and circumstance. You know, governors take a big role in license plates. When Ted Strickland was in office, his wife designed a plate not all that different from what was unveiled yesterday. Then when Kasich was in office, he was the one that designed that thing that looked like an envelope with a red mm-hmm. flap. That was a mm-hmm. weird looking plate with all the words on it. That's what I but, have. But what do you think? Does anybody like this license plate that's kind of based on the seal and has a city? I, I should point out our colleague Chris Ranowski thought it was interesting that the cities were on the left side of the plate and the <laughs> the <laughs> farm farm stuff's on the right. Anyway, what what do you think of it? I think it's I, way I think too it colorful. I, I don't like it. Yeah. I like a plain plate and I you know, ugh. But I mean, and they tried to cram so much imagery in there. They got a wheat field. They got a kid swinging from a tree. They've got skylines. They've got river. I mean, there's just too much going on. They got a dog. The dog's on the plate. <laughs> there's a <Yeah>. dog. <laughs> I, I think, I feel like the the former SEAL one from the Circle Administration got a lot of blowback. And this feels just like a zeroed in kind of version of that with a little more Instagrammy, a little like hazier. So I'm not really sure who was angling to go back to that and i feel like rather than the governor family coming up with these things why don't we have like a design competition to see what we could come up with mm -hmm. right with graphic artists across the people who know what they're doing that would have been a good idea you know this can i also throw in that the, 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 the disproportionately large rising sun in the background I mean, it looks like the apocalypse is upon us. <laughs> what is going on with that? It's like this little skyline and then an enormous ball of fire coming over the horizon. <laughs> Here, here's the thing. I would argue that this actually is important because when you travel out of state, your license plate is noticed. If you're driving down the highway and a Nebraska license plate goes by, you notice it because mm-hmm. it's an outlier. And so so we see license plates from other places and, and look at them. And if it's ugly, you'll remark to whoever you're sitting with, boy, that's an ugly license plate. I'm not going to that state. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's kind of a billboard for Ohio. And I, I, I'm not impressed by this at all. I've seen other plates that are far more interesting and I just, I wonder, I think you're right, Laura, where, where is the expertise that should be involved in designing something that is graphically impressive that represents the state? It just seems like it's 
Farmer Joe's turn to pick the license <laughs> well, plate. And well, it was it was I, designed I, I, it was designed by a DPS employee, Gary Gary Wyatt, I believe his name. Greg Wyatt. So yeah, it was just a state employee that just kind of drew it up. I don't know if he's an artist, but he I was worked talking for the to, DPS. Go ahead. I was talking to a colleague who lives in Tennessee. Who, I guess they just got any nice license plate, and he messaged me the new Tennessee license plate, and I was like, "Oh man, like it's like this very clean navy with like a cool icon in the middle." And they actually, uh, to Chris's point, have the website at the bottom for their to- Tennessee volunteer. Or sorry, not <laughs> that's their motto. Sorry, their um, tourism website at the bottom because the idea is this is a tourism. Uh, marketing. Right. We all we all go out of state. So our cars become billboards for the state. And the whole time I've lived in Ohio, we've had kind of dumb license plates. Whereas when I see cool ones from other states, it, you go, wow, look at that. And I don't know. It just doesn't seem like it puts a great image of Ohio out there. I mean, what state doesn't have cities and farms and haystacks and rivers? I mean, it's just not that's not really that special anyway and and i i do wonder if they screwed it up on purpose so we wouldn't have this part of the conversation you're listening to this week in the cle how will we ever know whether the u.s justice department has reopened its investigation into the cleveland police killing of 12 year old tamir rice Layla Tassi, the officers in that were never charged with any kind of crime a lot of people still think they should have been the, the Donald Trump administration shut down this investigation without much discussion about it. Samaria Rice has been fighting to get it reopened. What did we learn yesterday? Well, it seems I mean, the federal government certainly isn't going to tell us if they've reopened the investigation. I think that's what we learned this week. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland on Thursday told the House Judiciary Committee he, he couldn't address whether the Justice Department would reopen the probe into Tamir's death. And representatives of Tamir's family had written a letter to Garland earlier this year asking prosecutors to reopen the investigation and convene a grand jury. And the letter pointed out that President Trump's appointees had really shut down this investigation. They closed it last December when he was on his way out of office, saying that there wasn't enough evidence to bring charges against the officers involved. But Garland really wouldn't talk about any of that. He was sort of like, well, you know, we can't discuss the letter. We can't discuss, you know, whether whether the investigation is open or not. So, it, you know, I don't know. Tamir, Tamir's mother, Samaria, is scheduled to lead a Washington, D.C. rally next week to demonstrate support for reopening her son's case. And, and she plans to meet with Justice Department officials. So my feeling is if this case is reopened, you know, we'll either hear about it from Tamir's family or lawyers if, if they're inclined to talk about it. Although, didn't the Justice Department announce the first investigation? I mean, we didn't get that from Tamir's family. We got that from the local U.S. attorney's office. That's true. But why is Garland being so mysterious about it at this point? If uh, Yeah, right. That's, that's the, the question. Why wouldn't you just say, yes, we're reopening the case. We're not going to talk about it more than that, but the case is open. And that seemed like a bogus response. I mean, it was one thing to say, you know what? I don't know, which he said. But then to say, but I'm not going to tell you even if I do know. That, that's that's hokum. The court, we always or we regularly hear that investigations have been opened. And this was a civil rights investigation. They announced when they closed it. So I, I think that's bizarre that he would tell Congress, I'm not telling you. I hope they change their minds on that. Uh, I guess she'll get a hearing with the Justice Department when she's there. Right. Yeah, we'll find we'll hopefully we'll know more all about this when when she returns from D.C. If uh, if her I don't know if her her, if her meeting with the Justice Department is, uh, um, you know, if we'll know publicly what happened during that meeting or she'll come back and report. We'll, we'll we'll see. 
It's amazing we're still talking about this seven years later. I know. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Will Cuyahoga County's former jail director, Ken Mills, get to taste freedom while he appeals his conviction for mishandling the jail? Laura Johnston, they are dealing with Mr. Mills quite harshly. Yeah, the answer is no. He does not get to go free. Two 8th District Court of Appeals judge judges rejected this request from Mills to put his nine-month jail sentence on hold while he appeals his conviction. They wanted to either delay his sentence or release him on bond until the appeal is completed. But the judges said, no, he'll be in jail while he waits for his appeal. I mean, appeal. I don't, I don't know how long the appeal is going to take, but his judge, you know, he could serve his entire sentence before that gets settled. But he, you know, obviously he was convicted of misdeme- misdemeanor dereliction of duty and falsification charges after that th- three-week trial over the overcrowding and understaffed jail where eight people died. This seems to be a statement by the appellate judges that they don't see a whole lot of room for him to win that appeal. I would think so. But um, it's an interesting thing. And the idea is, you know, he's going to be serving time in prison um, where, you know, he managed this, this kind of thing, which I'm sure he never thought he'd be in the same kind of conditions he was managing. Yeah, I, I, I think if they thought that he had a legitimate appeal, they might let him free. But this was a, a very damning trial, and the sentencing judge was quite firm in, in talking to him when she sent him away. Uh, I think he, you're right. No matter what happens with the appeal, he's going to serve that sentence. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Where does unemployment stand in Ohio these days? Lisa Garvin, the talk of late has been the mass resignation. People that have walked away from the workforce because they won't take the low wages that many of the employers are offering. But in the beginning of the pandemic, there was a whole lot of people that lost their jobs and unemployment soared. Where are we now? We're actually in a better place. Uh, This is actually the lowest figure since uh, the beginning of the pandemic uh, back in March of 2020, right before the shutdown. Uh, So right now, the the August jobless rate it was 5.4% in Ohio. The job participation rate was just under 60%, just under 61%. And that's a little bit below the national average. Uh, so uh, the claims were about 7,500 claims for first time applicants for unemployment. There were 45,750 for people applying for ongoing benefits. Um, ODJFS spokesman Bill Teets says that this is quote, indicative of economic recovery, unquote. But as we all know, labor shortages are a serious problem and they continue in Ohio. So, uh, you know, we are going to get the September jobless figures out later today. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, But, you know, yeah, I mean, they they really don't know why there's a continuing labor shortage. I mean, the the usual suspects are people are retiring. There are still workplace and child care issues. But, you know, it's it's looking better. We've also had a lot of people die. I mean, that, 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 that too, was yes. not normal too. I mean, we've we've got fewer people out there. There's been a weird kind of trope going on on social media where people say, "I applied for a bunch of these entry level jobs that people say they have. I didn't get them, and I'm questioning whether there really is a labor shortage." Uh, I've seen that pop up in three or four places over the past week. I don't know if it's a if it's a false thing or if it's a real thing, but. People are talking about it. It'd be interesting to see if these employers are actually turning away job applicants. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is the city of Akron seeing the same kind of discord that Cleveland is? 
between the city council and the mayor on how to spend federal stimulus windfalls. Leila Tassi, the Cleveland battle, I don't know how that's going to end. It seems like it's ramping up with both sides jockeying for position. Are we seeing the same thing in Akron? We are seeing almost exactly the same thing playing out in Akron. It's so similar to what's happening in Cleveland. In Akron this week, the city council voted 8-5 to to endorse Mayor Dan Horrigan's plan to spend the city's $145 million from the American Rescue Plan. But the dissenters said that this plan, much like Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson's plan, was designed without much transparency or collaboration with the city council. Instead, Horgan used a consulting firm to choose 18 initial projects, and those include utility assistance programs and home repair grants, uh, surveillance cameras, grants for community nonprofits, lead service replacement and, and water main replacement projects, things like that. Um, and the council members acknowledged that that those seem like worthy projects, but when the debate and the deliberation doesn't include everyone, there are a lot of questions that go unasked, like whether any of this money will be invested in environmental sustainability or how the investment in violence prevention would will be coordinated among all the organizations that work on that issue. So Corrigan issued a statement that argues that council will get many chances to weigh in before each you know individual expenditure is authorized. And that's kind of the same argument that Jackson's folks are making in Cleveland. So very similar kinds of of uh, debates and and tension playing out in these two cities. I don't know that the council in Cleveland believes that. I think they're very suspicious that Kevin Kelly, the council president who's running for mayor, will try and rally up enough votes to shove through Frank Jackson's. He said as much as if this goes through three committees, we're going to move it through. Uh, do, you, do you get the sense that the Akron council members are becoming as activist as they are in Cleveland and would at the final minute stop it so that they can make sure that their wishes are covered? I don't know. We'll we'll have to see if they I mean, in Cleveland, we saw, you know, an uprising among council members who organized their own working group and, you know, to try to put the brakes on this and, and come up with their own plan. We'll see if something similar plays out in, in Akron. But I think so, you know, I think Kevin Kelly's point is, you know, we can get through this this kind of omnibus legislation, get that through council, but that each expenditure will come back. You know, they can't just start spending the money without council's approval on each of those line items, right? So there's, I mean, my, my, I just don't understand why it all had to be lumped into one giant piece of legislation. Why, why, why do it this way? Why is this the best way to, I mean, is it like you just want to kind of create the roadmap and from there pull it apart? And I mean, I don't know. I feel like this I, was I guess inviting, question... inviting the, the, the kind of tension that we're seeing. But my question is, why do you have to legislate the program? I mean, really, the spending is individual bills. Yeah, why couldn't that's they just my point. Get together right. and say, look, let's agree. They don't need to vote on it, but let's agree on how we want to apportion this money. And then let's make make it known and let people apply. And then we'll talk it out with each individual project. Right. It feels like they're trying to lock up the money. Of course. Before the next administration comes exactly. in. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening. I mean, I, I because otherwise you have some expenditures that are clearly more controversial than others. Things we saw it play out at the public safety committee a couple, you know, week week ago or whatever, where, you know, they were discussing these 
these vehicles they want to buy to basically quell protests <laughs> or arrest protesters or whatever, you know, the, the civil unrest. And, um, you know, that's highly controversial. So why gum up this huge piece of legislation with something like that? Peel everything out and, and you know, and contemplate them individually. That, you know. Yeah, I think I think this is a sign. They wasted so much time not planning how to spend this money that they're now in this rush in the next, what, 10 weeks before they all go away. Right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How does Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson's proposal to spend $10 million to bail out the failing Shaker Square fit the intention of the federal stimulus program? Laura Johnston, I think Shaker Square has gone through multiple iterations since I've been here and they don't work. You know, there's a grocery store that serves the neighborhood that works, but the rest of it's pretty fallow. What's the point of bailing it out? Is there even a reason for this to exist given today's shopping taste with Pinecrest and these outdoor malls like Legacy Village and and, and uh, Crocker Park? Well, two things on those. I would say the Edwins complex is thriving and restaurateur Brandon Kratowski runs that and that's He's actually tried to buy the entire Shaker Square. And the thing about Legacy Village and Pinecrest is those are way out in the burbs. I mean, Shaker Square is in Cleveland. I don't know of another area like it in Cleveland. I guess you could look at um, Gordon Square, but it's a very different development. When Shaker Square was built in 1929 by the Van Swearingen brothers, who are those industrialists who erected, erected the Terminal Tower, it was the first automobile oriented shopping center in Ohio, the second oldest in the nation. And I mean, they have a great farmer's market every Saturday. I haven't been in a while, but it is a very quaint, nice area that draws a whole lot of people from not just Cleveland, but from the surrounding suburbs. Except it's failing. I mean, it's not thriving. It's failing because people aren't using it. So you know, but you see a, why they want to save it is what I'm I'm saying. But 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 if nobody wants to use it, why save it? What do you do with it to make it vital? This is what the coral company was supposed to have done with it before, and they're going into there's there's a danger it'll be sold at a sheriff's sale right. because they can't pay their mortgage. Well, and even so, Pinecrest had problems during the pandemic because of decreased shopper you know foot traffic and everything like that. So yeah, I mean there's probably underlying issues. The pandemic is not the reason that they're twelve million dollars in debt on their mortgage, but it probably, it made it a lot worse. And the, you're right. The idea is, do you want to save it? And it's close to Larchmere. Larchmere has small businesses and draws people. I mean, I would think those work together. Well, and then my question is $10 million of the public's money. Yeah, I get it. Cleveland's got a big windfall of stimulus dollars, but is this a good use of $10 million of that? And does it fit what you're supposed to spend it on? Well, I mean, that is a question that I think should be debated and something that we should see public comment on as it winds its way through city council, because the idea is that it would bail this out now and then nonprofits would work to fix up the place, solicit feedback on how to make it more viable and shepherd it through at least the next few years and to keep it in local hands. They don't want it sold to some outside company. But obviously, this plan needs approval from city council, as well as the common pleas judge who is presiding over the foreclosure case. So this is far, far from a done deal. You know, I get the idea. It's historic. But sometimes things pass their prime. And and maybe the analysis should be what what is the taste of the public for something like this? Clearly, they're not going there. It's not thriving. I agree that we do need to talk about it and see if it is viable. 
There's a lot it's of empty, empty because no one is going there. Well, I don't know if you can make that correlation. I mean, the rapid transit goes right through the middle of Shaker Square and there's a stop there. I mean, but there's just a lot of empty storefronts. I don't know if it's rentals or, you know, lease prices or whatever. But yeah, I just. Yeah, that's a really good point because they just built the entire Van Aken project in Shaker just down the rapid line. Right. And Mm -hmm. that, I mean. That's doing well, right? Very well. Yeah, it's easy to get to. It's it's. But near so is Shaker Square. And... Shaker Square is just Not really. Easy to get I don't to. think. I don't think it's as easy to get to because it's not on like a major thoroughfare like Warrensville. But I mean, when I lived on the east side, I went a lot. I haven't been back, but um, I would I would hate to see it go. But I, I I get your point, Chris. I think it's a worthy discussion of is this the best way to spend ten million dollars of the public's money. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is Ohio preparing to get children vaccinated against the coronavirus quickly after the federal government approves the vaccines for youth? Lisa Garvin, everybody's waiting for this. Every parent is waiting for this. I imagine Layla Atassi will ring in and Laura Johnston will ring in. How is Ohio getting ready for this? Well, they are getting ready to hit the ground running. First of all, they've reached out to over 3,500 possible providers, you know, to get these vaccines out, including schools, pharmacies, you know, pediatricians and the like. They've already got 340,000 doses for kids 5 to 11 years old, though they will start to be available in November. 172,000 of those doses have already been ordered. And they're they're thinking that K through 12 schools will probably be the best avenue to get the most kids. So uh, that, that they're really focusing on that. And out of the 260, there are 260 school districts, about 25% of them in Ohio, that are planning to have vaccination clinics in their schools. So that's good news. Pharmacists, however, must have certain requirements to be able to vaccinate children under seven. So, uh, yeah, I, they're ready. As soon as the FDA pulls the trigger, I think that Ohio is ready to go. Well, Layla and Laura, have you called your doctor to make appointments yet? Well, my son just had his well well, well visit for turning 11. And, yeah, that was the idea. It's like, we're as soon as they're ready, we're going to be ready. Although, I mean, we could just go to the pharmacy. Kids under seven might have a harder time. Pharmacies have to meet certain requirements to be able to give them. But, you know, I'm happy to take my kids to CVS and maybe get a booster while I'm there. And uh, Laura Hancock and Andrew Tobias's story did answer another burning question that they plan to start the Vax to School lottery after these shots begin. So, Layla, mm-hmm. we can get our kids signed up. I didn't realize that the needles were, they had smaller needles for children, that they you had, there's a whole, whole, infrastructure you have to deal with when you're giving shots to kids did you know that i did not know that (laughs) so no you didn't know it mom no i didn't i have not concentrated on the size i've not measured the size of the needles you're just always holding your kids yeah you're too busy trying to distract your kid (laughs) (laughs) okay all right you're listening to this week in the cle Chief politics writer Seth Richardson published profiles on Justin Bibb and Kevin Kelly this week as they head to their Election Day showdown for mayor of Cleveland. Leila Tassi, we obviously cannot go over everything in those stories. They're long and detailed. But what were some of the things that stood out to you? 
Well, we learned that both of these candidates came from very humble beginnings. You know, Justin Bibb grew up on the city's east side where he lived with his mom and grandmother. And Kevin Kelly lived in Chicago until he was 12 years old when his father died of a heart attack and his family packed up and moved to Cleveland to be near relatives. And he spent the rest of the ad- his adolescence in the West Park neighborhood. But from there, you know, the two candidates' paths are quite divergent. You know, Kelly, his first chosen profession was social work, which, to be honest, I, I actually didn't know that <laughs> until I read these profiles. He had at one point handled heavy caseloads, helping the mentally ill with housing and health care and income. He got a master's degree in social work. He worked for the courts for a while. And then he decided to plunge into politics. He first ran for city council in 97, but lost. And then, you know, he set his sights on the Ohio House of Representatives. But the Democratic machine at the time, led by Jimmy DeMora, was working against him. He, he stacked the deck against Kelly and the Democratic Party ended up backing his opponent, Mary Rose Okar, and Kelly lost that election. And it wasn't until he aligned himself with another arm of the, the political machine, Bill Mason and Mike O'Malley, that he finally got his break. And in 2005, O'Malley stepped down from city council for other pursuits and nominated Kelly to succeed him, that famously controversial backdoor into Cleveland politics. <laughs> and, and, you know, the rest is history. As for Bibb. Oh, his... hold on, hold on. Oh, yeah. I, it, that, that machine was actually the um, Bill Mason, Pat O'Malley machine, Mike's brother. Oh, sure. He, right. he did get the Pat council O'Malley. seat for Mike, but Pat O'Malley's I kind of a little forget bit it, older but yeah, Pat O'Malley is kind of, I forget about him in the Yeah, <laughs> but he was, he was a big part. Look, it was a faction. They were trying to build the West Side faction because the East Side arm of the party was so strong. Uh, and and that's where where they they came from. I mean, he said a lot of things about, you know, Michael Malley goes way back with and Michael Malley said that he knew him as a big activist and that's why he named him to the job. But that I, I, there was a lot of detail on that that I didn't know. And I've been around a long time. So it's good stuff by uh, by Seth to put that together. What did you learn about Bibb? Bibb, you know, his family worked very hard to get to get just Justin Bibb and, you know, into the best educational opportunities. And that meant getting him into schools outside of the Cleveland School District. His dad lived in Shaker. So for a while, he attended Shaker Middle School and he was bullied in an awful way there for the way he dressed and talked and looked. And he said it, it just was not cool to be a black kid who wanted to be smart and to be involved in the community. But he says now that in looking back, it only enhanced his identity of who he wanted to be. He said, I wanted to be a successful, well-credentialed black man. That was my goal because that's what my parents raised me to be. I'm, I'm happy for the year and a half that I spent there because it affirmed my path. So then he ended up at Orange Christian Academy. And from there, he majored in urban studies at American University in Washington, D.C. He was president of his pre-law fraternity. He studied he studied public policy abroad for a year in, at the London School of Economics. He started a nonprofit funded through the Corporation for National Community Service to to provide service learning programs for students. And he worked for Gallup all while in school. (laughs) So then he eventually came back to Cuyahoga County and worked for then County Executive Ed Fitzgerald for a while. And then he kind of bounced around, you know, the way I I hate to say it, the way millennials do, (laughs) because that's the way the world has to be. Um, uh, he, He went to New York and worked for a private equity firm. He came back and went to law school at Case. He worked for Gallup again. He then went to KeyBank in 2019 as vice president of corporate strategy, but then left after only a year because he saw an opportunity with a nonprofit on the West Coast called Urbanova that finds solutions to problems that that mid-sized cities face. And at this point, 
Bibb had decided to run for mayor and leaving right. Key Bank for a nonprofit with that mission really made sense to him. Yeah. So he had been exploring a possible run for mayor since 2017, and he sought the advice of many mentors, including former Mayor Mike White, who really saw something remarkable in him and, and got behind him right away yeah, when others I'm, had tried to encourage him to, to run for other way. offices. We're going way oh, too long. <laughs> if there's great detail in these stories. Check them out on cleveland.com. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. Have a great weekend. We'll be back Monday.